When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. We're back at Wilderness Festival this August, where the journalist and author of Empireland, Satnam Sanghera, is going to be talking to Hannah McInnes. In anticipation, I wanted to share our event from last year's festival, this time with the scientist and author of groundbreaking books including The Selfish Gene and The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins. Enjoy. I should ask you first how, you, how you're finding the festival. Are you a regular festival goer? Uh, I can't exactly say that. No, I, uh, this is possibly the first one I've ever been to, I think. Oh. Oh. <laughs> that makes it even more of a privilege to have you. So, as I said, the meaning of life. I mean, I don't know if people in this tent have an immediate answer to that question. Does, do people find that quite a sort of... Yeah, okay, someone does straight away. But I think generally the feeling is that that's a question that you want to go away and think about. But as I said, luckily, it is something that you have spent a great deal of time thinking about. I know that you're probably one of the only people who can just answer quite succinctly. According to you, what is the meaning of life? Well, I would hesitate to give my biological answer first because people might run away with the idea that that's the only meaning we have it ourselves. And of course, we each of us have our own private, personal meaning of, of life, which is important to us. And I don't wish to downplay that. As a biologist, the meaning of life is the propagation of DNA. And this is follows f- directly from the Darwinian theory, which, as you know, is, the, is what accounts for the existence of all life, including our own. So every single living creature that has ever lived is engaged upon the enterprise of working for, passing on the genes, the DNA that made it. And that's a very straightforward, simple answer. It takes several books to, in order to elaborate on, on, but it's rather nice that it is possible to give a single answer to, to that question. You said at the start that's your sort of biological answer. That's the answer of the evolutionary biologist. And that may sound to quite a lot of people quite clinical and cold and many people might have been thinking happiness or joy or love, those sorts of things. That's exactly why I I prefaced my remarks by saying we each of us have our own meaning of life and and my meaning is very likely different from yours, different from yours and so on. And um, we have to respect those meanings of life. But the biological meaning, uh, I don't think it's cold, I don't think it's hard. You could look at it that way if you wish. But I think it's very exciting. I think it's absolutely thrilling, in fact, that not only life, I suspect, on this planet, wherever in the universe there is life, I conjecture with confidence it will be Darwinian life, and therefore that the meaning of life anywhere in the universe will be the propagation, not of DNA, of course, because DNA is local to this planet, but of something equivalent to DNA, something self-replicating, which is what DNA is, That is the meaning of life 
I conjecture everywhere in the universe it is certainly the meaning of life here. So if somebody does not pass on genes, but if they don't have children, you know, there's adoption, there's lots of things. I know you've referenced this before. You wouldn't look at them and say their life has no meaning. Absolutely not. No, that's very important to say that. Of course not. We're talking about the meaning of life in, in general, the meaning of life of a lichen, of a dinosaur, of a, of a brontosaurus, of a, of a kangaroo, of an oak tree. That is the meaning of, of life from an academic point of view. But as I keep saying... From our own personal point of view, the meaning of life is what playing a musical instrument or writing a book or reading a book or, or falling in love, whatever it might be. Those I've heard you refer to as sort of sub-goals that, get, that slightly distract people along the way. There's the main goal and then there's the sub-goals. Well, you can look at it that way. You can say that the, that the main goal of all life is the propagation of DNA. But in the course of that, animals and plants, animals set up sub-goals, which are things like find prey hunt for prey, hunt for, search for a mate, search for a, a nesting site. Those are all sub-goals, and then you have sub-sub-goals and so on. Well, in humans, sub-goals and sub-sub-goals are exactly things like write a book, which have nothing whatever directly to do with propagating genes, but nevertheless they are set up in the brain. The brain has mechanisms to set up these sub-goals, which in nature would be in the service of the overall global goal of propagating DNA. But as it happens in humans, thank goodness, the sub-goals have taken over. And so we've completely at liberty to forget about the, the, the main biological goal. And we are at liberty to concentrate on the sub-goals, which are whatever we choose to make them. Could we go back to where it all began for you? I understand that, like the other very well-known and renowned biologist, Jane Goodall, you had quite a respect for Dr. Doolittle. Oh, I love Dr. Doolittle. Um, uh, he had such a, a wonderful regard for animals, and uh, um, he was a great naturalist. He reminds me of the young... Charles Darwin on the Beagle. I think, I think of, if you read The Voyage of the Beagle, I think he's very much like Dr. Doolittle with his reams and reams of notebooks and, and curiosity about, about everything. Um, so yes, I, I love Dr. Doolittle. I, I think it was Dr. Doolittle that imbued in me the, the idea of speciesism, what later became called speciesism, the, the sort of arrogant placing of humanity on a pedestal over and above all the rest of the living world. Did, when people asked you, uh, when you were younger, did you have the answer ready, I want to be a biologist? No, far from it. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to be. Um, I think I didn't really know what I wanted to be till I got to university, very late. So we've talked about your sort of idea of what the meaning of life is, but you got to university, you've obviously, as you said, written a lot of books about it. Was there one, has there been a sort of driving purpose to your life, mission, in terms of what you've been doing, a thread that underlies it all? I suppose the thread that underlies all my books has been to try to understand and to try to pass on understanding to others. I'm not very quick at understanding, and I think that's one of the reasons why I can explain it to other people, is that, is that I have to work hard at understanding. And, and if, I, if I can understand it, then, then you can too, and, and, I, and I can then work at, at passing it on. I think people will be quite surprised. I've heard you say this before, that you're not sort of quick at understanding. I think people might have other ideas about your levels of knowledge. No, I, I, I 
that's not false humility. Um, I may have certain gifts, but speed of understanding is not one of them. I have to work hard on understanding. It's <laughs> good to know. Okay, good. Uh, human. I think one of the things that um, certainly has driven a lot of your work, you know, there's the, the God delusion, but you've also recently written Outgrowing God, which is for a much younger audience. And in those books, you are trying to tell people to move away from a belief in God or a belief or a religious belief. I wonder why that's important to you. That's all a part of my science, really. I, I regard the scientific worldview as liberating and immensely exciting, thrilling, enthralling. And the religious view of the universe I regard as a competing and erroneous point of view and therefore, it's part of my mission to promote science, is, is to um, destroy religion. <laughs> There's obviously got a lot of support in this tent, but it is my role to you know, push back at that a little bit, which is, why, why would you, um, I mean, you talk about religion and, and fanatical religion, which of course, you know, doesn't have its place and has caused a lot of problems. But why would you sort of deprive someone of the comfort of religion, the community of religion, you know, what it, what it brings to so many people? Yes, comfort is a wonderful thing. Um, and I wouldn't wish to deprive anybody of comfort. Um, if you're comforted by hugging a teddy bear, then you're very welcome to do so, and I wouldn't wish to snatch it away from you. <laughs> but, but, but you are doing that, snatching away. You are, you are attempting to do that, I mean, but in your books, trying to make sure that sort of, you know, you, you've said you'd like to see a society, as you just said, with no religion, so... Yes, I would. Uh, I would like to see um, religion disappear, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to go doorstepping. I'm not like a Jehovah's Witness who sort of goes... <laughs> knocks on the door and says, are you, you unsaved? Can you Richard Dawkins yeah. on your doorstep? <laughs> but, I mean, the alternative is science. But, but there's, there's unknowns and knowns in science too. I, I have huge respect for science, but there's always a mystery and myth and in, in everything. And I suppose a lot of people turn to religion to not know everything. And they like that and they want that uncertainty and that mystery of life. Well, in a, in a different kind of way, scientists like mystery because it's some, it gives them something to do. Uh, we, we, we like to not know because then we're, we go to work on trying to know. What we do not respect is the person who says, I don't know and I want it to stay that way. And that's a huge difference. So do you feel that, as I just said, in terms of a society that you would like to see, it would be a society with no religions at all, or would you be happy for people to peacefully practice their religion? As you say, if it's their teddy bear, whatever it might be to them. Would well, you... far be it from me to deprive anybody of, of, of anything, so I wouldn't, I, wouldn't watch to, I wouldn't go out of my way to deprive people of anything. But I think the world would be a better place without religion for various reasons. If... Um, uh, you were in a sort of position of power, um, you know, not knocking on people's doorsteps as a Jehovah's Witness, but if you had a role in, in, in sort of public life, in government, what would you do to start bringing that sort of a worldview around? I would hesitate to use any kind of dictatorial power over anybody. I would wish to persuade rather than dictate. 
So um, although I, I would, I might, if, if I, you're talking about, say, I was in government or something. Yes, I, yeah. I, if you had a role for religious, you know, getting well, rid of religion in government. For a start, I would not get rid of religious education. I think religious education is very important. I've often said so. It's very important that people should learn about religion because religion is so enormously important in the world. Uh, you can't understand history. You can't appreciate literature. In all sorts of ways, you need to, to be educated in the existence of religion and all different sorts of religions because it, it is so important. But what I would wish to oppose, I think, would be faith schools which are tied to one particular religion where what they do is to tell a child, you belong to such and such a religion, you are in a Catholic school, you're in a Protestant school, you're in a Muslim school, therefore this is what you believe. That, I think, is wrong. What you should be telling the children is think for yourself. There are various religions in the world. These people believe this, these people believe that, these people believe the other. There's science. There's all sorts of different things that people believe. You can make up your own mind. So don't be, ever be indoctrinated. Don't be told what to believe. Don't be told what to think. Be, to be taught how to think. <laughs> For you, was a sort of light bulb moment, Darwin? Did, did things change when discovering him and his theory? And were you a believer in different things before that? Oh, yes, I was, of course. Um, I told you I wasn't very quick to understand, and that was true of Darwinism as well. I, I, I think it was my father who first tried to explain Darwinism to me, and I didn't really get it properly at first. Although I, I kind of got it, but didn't think it was powerful enough to do the job of explaining life. So I wouldn't say a light bulb moment, I'd say somewhat more gradual than that. One of the things that you've talked about, you talk about it in Outgrowing God, is the fact that um, you know Darwinian theory doesn't explain any creation of a universe, which many people want to understand in order to uh, give meaning to life, how the universe was created. So how do we account for leaving that a myth and a mystery? Do you have any more ideas about that than when oh, we well, perhaps that, last spoke? What I would have meant by that is that I'm a biologist and, and biology takes over uh, when life begins, which was about um, maybe four billion years ago on this planet. As for how the universe began, that's a matter for a physicist, which I'm not. I'm a, I am a lay reader in books of physics, like many people here no doubt are, and so... My understanding of physics is, is not particularly profound. I read a lot of physics books and try to understand them. But um, I can't speak as an authority on physics. I can possibly answer any particular question you might have as though I was a physicist, but I'm not. <laughs> what, what you talk about, in fact, is that very, very sort of intelligent people, Einstein, who you talk about an outgrowing God, a sort of enigmatic in their in their explanations of how the universe was created. They leave uh, an element like we were talking about before of mystery, of myth. Um, you know, you talk about his cosmic religion. He talked about a god. Einstein did. So they they leave that as the possibility that there was a god. Yes. Well, there are people like that. Einstein wasn't one of them. Um, Einstein actually used the word God, but only as a metaphor for that which we don't understand. And I should emphasize very importantly that, of course, science doesn't know everything. It's very important to, to stress that. I hope I 
said it already, but science in a way revels in what we don't know because this gives us something to do and there's an awful lot we don't know. And in particular, the origin of the universe is a mystery. It's not yet known. Um, what is a mistake, of course, is to say because we don't understand it, therefore God did it. That doesn't help at all. That's not an explanation. Um, Einstein didn't do that. Einstein used the word God, but he used the word God just as a word for that which we don't know. So when talking about quantum theory, for example, Einstein didn't like the principle of indeterminacy. And he said, but he does not play dice, meaning God does not play dice. But when he used the word God in that sort of context, he didn't really mean a personal God. He was most adamant about that. He was very, very strong in his disbelief in a personal God. Um, so let's not bring Einstein in, but you're right, there are some physicists who do believe in uh, some kind of great creative spirit, and they take refuge when we, they say we don't understand how the laws of physics came into being, and we don't. I mean, there are the laws of physics, there are the fundamental constants of physics, there are half a dozen or so, a few more numbers which physicists can measure. They know what the value of them are, things like the gravitational constant. They know what the value of it is, but they don't have any theory to explain why it has that value. And there are a few physicists, not many, who resort to a divine creator to explain who set the fundamental constants. If you think of them as a set of dials, a sort of knobs that you can twiddle. So they would resort to a divine knob twiddler who sets up the... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> who, who twiddles the knobs to get exactly the right value of the gravitational constant of the, of the, weak, the weak force, the strong force, and, and all, all the other half dozen or so forces. Now, we don't know how those con constants were fixed, and there are a few physicists who resort to a divine creator to twiddle the knobs and fix those values. There are others who say, we just don't understand yet. And there is a third group, and probably the majority of physicists, who say, this universe is just one of many universes, a multiverse of universes. And in the multiverse, there are billions of universes which all have different values of the fundamental constants. And only a tiny minority of those universes have the exact correct values of the fundamental constants, such as to bring galaxies and planets and stars and chemistry and life into existence. And of course, we have to be in one of that minority of universes because here we are talking about it. That's the anthropic principle. And that's probably what the majority of physicists say when challenged to explain why the fundamental constants are, so to speak, fine-tuned, or so they say, fine-tuned, to bring galaxies and stars and chemistry and life and ultimately us into existence, the anthropic principle. I think you probably explained it well, very well, having said you're not a physicist. And in my defence, um, Einstein, it was you who says offers scant consolation to either party because his cosmic religion and sort of distant deistic God fits neither into the agenda of religious believers or tribal atheists. So I was sort of getting at that with him. 
with, with Einstein. Yes, that's why I brought yes. him into the in subject. But let's move on from the creation of life to the end of life, because it's fascinating to hear your thoughts on that. I've seen in a, a recent interview um, you did with the Times that, not to be morbid, but you've chosen your eulogy, and it's the first lines of your 1998 book. Um, shall I read those, or do, do you want uh, Yes. I think it's um, from Unweaving the Rainbow, Science, Delusion, and Appetite for Wonder. Um, we're going to die, and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they're never going to be born. So is death something that you don't fear, and what do you feel death is, I suppose, the, or the happens? Point of, the point about that quotation, which, as you say, I wish to have read at my funeral, is that we are amazingly lucky to be here. Um, when you think about the... Well, just, just the accident that each one of us was conceived by a particular sperm, for example. Um, <laughs> Aldous Huxley wrote a poem about that, which I'll try and remember. A million million spermatozoa, all of them alive, out of their cataclysm but one poor Noah dare hope to survive. And of that billion minus one, might have chanced to be Shakespeare, another Newton, a new Dunn. But the one was me. <laughs> Shame to have ousted your betters thus, taking ark while the others remained outside. Better for all of us, froward homunculus, if you'd quietly died. Um, so that's why you've chosen that line and obviously brilliant that you could just bring that poem to memory. But just to finish the sort of second part of my question, which was, I suppose, I think people would be interested to find out what you think happens to a person when they die or whether you fear that moment. Well, that's obvious what happens. I mean, either you're buried or you're cremated or you give your body to science and, and, and that's that. Um, uh, I, I love life. I mean, I'm 81, and uh, so I have obviously have to face the fact that I haven't got all that much longer to go. But I want to enjoy every minute of it, and I want to do all I can to help other people enjoy every minute of it as well. When you talk about loving life and we're lucky to be here, I think of one of the books that you've written recently that people might not have had the chance to read, which is your Flights of Fancy book. Yeah. This is a, a, about both humans and, and some extraordinary explanations of how animals fly and why they do with the most beautiful illustrations. It's a, it's a really beautiful book. And I've heard you actually in a previous How To Academy interview with Robin Wintz, uh, Ince describing just some of those extraordinary ways in which animals have adapted themselves to fly. And I think we should sort of treat the wilderness audience to some of your choosing. So perhaps squirrels and some of the others that you okay, describe. Um, well, th this is a, a, a short book. It's an illustrated book, as you say. It's illustrated by Jana Lentsova, who will be signing books with me, by the way, after, afterwards, we're signing the book together. And it's all about the different uh, ways in which the laws of physics have been overcome, well, not overcome, have been exploited by animals and humans in getting off the ground, in defying gravity. You mentioned squirrels. Well, presumably you mean the flying, so-called flying squirrels, which are squirrels which have a flap of skin stretched from the arm to the foot, from the hand to the foot. 
and they live in the forests of Africa and Southeast Asia, and they climb up high trees, and then they launch themselves into the air and glide maybe a hundred yards, a gentle glide down to a lower tree. And it's tempting to think that this may be how true flight got started. True flight, of course, is staying in the air indefinitely. These squirrels don't stay in the air indefinitely. They stay in the air for maybe half a minute. And interestingly, there are also marsupials in Australia that do exactly the same thing, and you'd be hard pushed to distinguish between them. They look almost exactly the same. They do the same trick of, in this case, the eucalyptus forests of Australia, and they launch themselves off high trees to lower trees. Then there are so-called flying lemurs that do the same thing. They have a membrane of skin, and more or less a parachute stretching from arm to foot to tail. There are flying lizards that do the same thing with their ribs. They stick their ribs out and a flap of skin is connecting the ribs. So they're gliding with their ribs. Flying frogs that have a membrane stretched between their fingers and toes and they also do the same thing. Then of course we come to bats which really do fly properly uh, and which stay in the air as long as they want to. And birds of course and pterosaurs, pterodactyls all extinct, but magnificent flyers if only we could have seen them today. What about the poor ant that only gets to fly once? Why does nature... Well, yes, uh, queen, queen ants have wings. Worker ants, as you know, don't have wings. They just run about. Queen ants have wings. They only use them once on their mating flight. Male ants also have wings on their mating flight. And when a queen has mated, she lands on the ground and bites her wings off, and then burrows underground and starts a new nest. So this is an illustration. It comes at the beginning of the chapter on, which is called, If Flying is So Great, Why Do Some Animals Lose Their Wings? And queen ants are a particularly dramatic example of this, because they not only lose their wings in evolutionary time, they lose their wings in real time. They bite them off, or pull them off. And... Uh, Queen termites do the same thing. But there are lots and lots of birds, especially on islands, which have lost their wings in evolutionary time. So they've used their wings to get to the island in the first place many thousands of years ago. And then they lose their wings over the millennia. Galapagos flightless cormorants is another nice example. Um, dodos, which are now extinct, of course, unfortunately, another nice example. That the world is full of island birds, which no longer fly, no longer have working wings, but no doubt their ancestors must have got there on wings, and that's why they're birds on those islands, not mammals, because the mammals couldn't fly there. Why did you, just sticking with this book for a moment, and there are so many people that I do want to try and leave quite a lot of time for questions, yeah. because I have no doubt from the reaction that there will be some great questions from all of you. But on, on Flights of Fancy, I wonder what drove you to write that book, I suppose, and to, to tell all those extraordinary stories. Well, it could have been written about almost anything. I mean, the, everything about life is fascinating, and, and you have to narrow it down somehow. And so narrowing it down to flight was just one way of doing it. It grew out of an earlier book called The Magic of Reality, which is a book for children uh, about, um, with about a, a dozen chapters, and each chapter is a question like, what is an earthquake? What is the sun? Why do we have night and day? Why do we have winter and summer? 
And I sort of rather thought of having a new, a new book along the same lines. And the first chapter was going to be flight, and then flight grew into a whole book. Can I ask about whether you've changed? Well, first of all, uh, let's ask whether you personally, it's, you know, lots has changed since you began this work. You have very strong views that you stick to vehemently. But what has changed about your views over the decades? Has anything come in to change your mind? Mm. <laughs> well... Not in the, I mean, the, my first book, The Selfish Gene, laid out the principle of life as being about preserving replicators' DNA. I haven't changed on that. I mean, that that is definitely true if Darwinism is true. It, it follows logically from neo-Darwinism, which all biologists today essentially accept. So, no, I, I haven't changed that. I, I've... I, I got some things wrong in that book, but relatively minor things. I, I wouldn't say that the main thesis has changed. What about the way in which you feel uh, prepared to sort of put your work out there today? I mean, we just talked about how you've written this beautiful book with illustrations. Would you feel comfortable challenging the status quo in quite the same way now? There's a lot of, um, I mentioned there's been a lot of controversy along the way. And now we have social media. I know you're lively on Twitter. Would you feel ha happy challenging things now in a slightly sensitive age? No, not really. You, you have to be very careful because you get, you get jumped on all, all over the place if you, if you challenge certain shibboleths. So there, there are certain kind of no-go areas which I won't go there. <laughs> but, but, uh, you, you, but you're, as I say, sort of on social media. When people challenge you, when people get quite uh, upset by your views, which they have done th through um, all the time that you've been working, I wonder on a personal level how you react to that, whether it you know, upsets you, I suppose, or whether you deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis very well. I have done two YouTube videos reading out my hate mail. Um, and uh, amid much merriment on the part of the camera crew who were, who were filming. So I have no, n nothing hurts me when I'm attacked by religious fundamentalists. Uh, Didn't know if you were gonna go on, no? I don't like being attacked by my own side, put it that way. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just lastly, from me, I mean, I think when people say sort of the word legacy, it again sounds uh, uh, not you know morbid, but I, I don't mean it in that way at all. As I said, you've lived an extraordinary life. You've given um, so much to sort of public debate. Do you think about what you want people to think of when they think of you? Do, do you think of having some sort of a legacy and how you sort of hope to have shaped or altered public debate as people go forward? I would like to think that I leave a legacy of possibly somewhat improved understanding of the nature of life. That's what I would like to leave, yes. 
And uh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's what I would like to leave. And a love, a love of truth, a love of factual evidence, a love of the excitement of understanding the nature of the real world, because the real world reality, I called it the magic of reality, it is, it is magical. I, sorry, I've, I've just pr promised that I'd go to audience questions, but it, it reminds me of a, a really sort of important question that hangs in the air all the time, and you know more so perhaps than ever now. Do you hope that that work, though these these books that um, show people how they are not superior to nature, as you said at the very beginning, speciesism, will help in any way in the sort of um, fight against climate change and our sort of inability to to realise that we are not in control? Yes, again, this is, this is not my field, and I, I don't speak as an expert. I speak as an ordinary citizen, but as an ordinary citizen, I am concerned. And so, insofar as if I can influence people to value evidence, value factual knowledge, then I think that will automatically lead them to be worried about climate change. But I, I haven't actually written any books about climate change myself. Tempted to? Well, no, I, I, I only write about what I know something about. Um, does anyone... I mean, I'm sure there are masses of questions. There's a, there's a roving microphone, so what we'll try and do is get to as many as possible. Um, uh, yes, brilliant. OK, so where, where, where's the microphone? If someone could just show me where the mic is. There. Um, could you... That lady there with the hat? Yeah. I think I, there was an experiment that we run uh, over mouse over multiple generations, and at some point they stopped reproducing. And also, I think in lots of rather advanced countries, you see birth rate dropping. So, how do you explain the fact that um, at a certain point people actually give up this willingness to reproduce? If 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 it's true, I mean, it, it no doubt you can find demographic data to show that um, in certain countries birth rates are going down and other countries they're going up. There are all sorts of complicated psychological, sociological reasons why birth rates are affected. On the whole, it tends to be that the more educated people are, the lower the birth rate, for example. That's, that's a, I think, a, a, a fact. But again, I'm not a demographer and I, I, don't, um, I don't wish to pontificate either for or against increasing birth rates in different countries. These are very complicated matters. Hi there. Um, so I'm actually also a biologist and a geneticist, in fact. And so a thing that really interests me from the perspective of animals and sort of selfishness, I guess, is vampire bats, which create a very altruistic society where very often bats will like give away food that they've collected to bats that are unable to collect food or to go out and hunt, and often at a cost to themselves and to their own energy. So I would like to know how you explain that if you think that the only purpose of an animal is to propagate and to reproduce selfishly, because often these bats then lose their ability to reproduce. The, the selfish gene, the, the book The Selfish Gene is actually mostly about altruism, not about selfishness. Um, the point is that the selfish gene gives rise to the altruistic organism, the altruistic individual. And there are several ways in which selfish genes, uh, the natural selection of selfish genes gives rise to altruistic organisms. The simplest of these, of these ideas, there are two of them, one is 
altruism towards kin and the other is altruism in the expectation of reciprocation, in the expectation that altruistic acts will be repaid at some future date. Now, these are both perfectly respectable Darwinian theories which follow logically from the selfish gene. What is less easy to understand is why humans perform such hyper-altruistic acts as being a blood donor, giving to charity anonymously, that kind of thing. There seems to be no doubt that humans go above and beyond the dictates of the selfish gene as understood in any naive, simple way. I think the way to get this is to think of natural selection working in the distant past on our ancestors at a time when we lived in a very different conditions. We would have lived in perhaps small bands, small groups, perhaps small villages, roving bands a bit like baboons maybe, where the only people you ever meet would have been, only people you ever met would have been either close kin or potential reciprocators, potential repayers of favors, or both, or probably both. That would mean that natural selection would have favored a, a rule of thumb in the brain, not work out who your kin are and be good to them, not work out who's been good to you necessarily and be good to them, but be good to everybody you meet. Because that rule of thumb would work, would have the consequence of favoring genes for that kind of behavior in the village environment in which our ancestors lived. And we no longer live under those conditions, but the rule of thumb is still in our brains. The rule of thumb is be nice to everyone. And that works even though we no longer live under the conditions where natural selection would have favored that. An analogy might be, or a parallel might be, the desire for sex, even though we are using contraceptives. We all understand, appreciate, that the Darwinian reason why we enjoy sex is because in, the, in a state of nature that would have led to reproduction. So any gene that makes you want sex, any gene that makes you enjoy sex, is likely in a state of nature to find itself in the next generation automatically. Nowadays that's no longer true because we now have contraception. But the rule of thumb in the brain is not desire to make babies. The rule of thumb is, perhaps this answers the earlier question somewhat, the rule of thumb is enjoy sex. And enjoy sex. How did I know someone? Thank you. Enjoy sex is a rule of thumb which once upon a time had good genetic consequences from the point of view of the selfish gene. The fact that it no longer does in no way weakens the power of the rule of thumb that remains in our brain. So we have a rule of thumb, enjoy sex. We also have a rule of thumb, enjoy being good to everyone you meet. They're parallel cases. Just before, just while we find the other question, I've heard you mention this before, the selfish gene you said is about altruism. Do, do you sometimes look back and think, you know, why that title then? Well, it's a precisely correct title because it doesn't say the, the selfish individual. It does actually say the selfish gene, which is very different. 
But yes, I have somehow thought, sometimes thought it was the wrong title. And I've sometimes thought uh, it perhaps would have been better to call it the immortal gene. Thank you. So I'm still struggling with the meaning of life question. <laughs> I got stuck in the first few minutes. Uh, so natural selection and neo-Darwinism is a fact, and probably in the whole universe, as you say. But how does that make it meaning? Do you mean, is there a meaning outside of human minds that make it meaningful? Or, and if it is inside individual minds, don't we all have to agree that it is the meaning? Or is there, do you... Well, I, I tried to cover that in a way by saying we, we all have our own meaning. I wouldn't expect we all agree about the meaning, but, but I, I expect that you have a meaning and I have a meaning and everybody else has a, has a meaning. Um, and in, in meaning in that sense is something that we all differ about probably. But meaning in, an, in another sense, what is life all about? What's it for? Why does it exist? Why, why, does, why does life happen at all? In that sense of meaning of, of, of life, that the answer I gave is the, is the one meaning, is the Darwinian one, is the one meaning. Would you say it's a dis, uh, distinguishing between the meaning of life and then what makes life meaningful for yeah, each other? That's, that's a good way to put it, yes. Professor Dawkins, firstly, let me say what tremendous respect I have for you, for your career and who you are and everything that you say. Yeah, truly. Your book, The God Delusion, was very, very influential for me as a, as a child. I grew up as an as a ardent anti-theist. I hated religion. However, I'm now um, studying a PhD in cosmology and consciousness. This is not so much a question as an invitation for a paradigm-shifting dialogue. I believe that materialism, which is a paradigm you subscribe to, which cannot explain the existence of consciousness, it cannot answer any fundamental questions why we are here, is erroneous, and it's the fundamental thing that's holding humanity back from evolving. I would like to present an alternative reason and meaning for our existence, and it's the evolution of human consciousness. This is not a material reality, it's a mental one. Yeah? As Max Planck, the physicist, says... Matter, he's been studying matter for 40 years, and all he can say is that matter does not exist as such, it is, it is a mind. Same as Einstein, he says, he used the word geist, a spirit or a mind. There's things that materialism cannot explain. Onto Genesis, the idea that RNA would shuffle around randomly, accidentally. Sorry. <laughs> no, I was just wondering if, if, if you had a question for him. No, that's it. But I respect you so much, but I don't know if you'd be able to be willing okay, to shift I, your paradigm. Okay, okay yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I, thank, thank you, thank you. I, I, I regard subjective consciousness as the deepest mystery facing biology. Um, however, that doesn't in any way shake my belief in materialism because um, it is, consciousness, whatever else it is, is a product of brain stuff the product of brains, unless you, if you want to deny that, you're going to have to say something like Deepak Chopra, say something like, the whole universe is conscious, something like that. And I take it you're not going to do that. Um, if, you, if you are, then we, we've got a, a, a great deal of spade work to get through. <laughs> uh, sorry, there's so many, so many questions and not, not enough time, but um, let, let's move. Where's the other? Um... Hi. Ignoring religious fanaticism, why do you think as a scientist that so mil many million people over the decades and millenniums have got it wrong on religion? Childhood indoctrination, mostly. Um, it, 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 it is an extraordinarily powerful effect that, that if, if 
if, if, if a child is told at a sensitive age that such and such is true, it's quite hard to shake that off. So that, that I think is perhaps the main reason. And also, it is a big puzzle. I mean, you look around you, the beauty of the world, the complexity of the world, um, and you think to yourself, how did this all come about? And we are so used to the idea that complicated things have a designer because we're surrounded by machines which have designers, and so it's a fairly natural thing to jump to the conclusion that when you see a tree, when you see a lion, when you see an antelope, when you see an eye, it, it looks as though somebody designed it. There's no doubt getting away from it. It overwhelmingly carries that, that, that illusion, I would say, of design. And this explains why it took until the middle of the 19th century until anybody tumbled to the alternative explanation, which is that there really is a non-designer explanation for the apparent existence of design. It's a very hard thing to, to grasp, and um, even when Darwin came along with the theory, it took a long time for people to accept it. I'm mystified in a way by why it took so long, why it had to wait until middle of the 19th century and clever people like Newton and Aristotle and Hume didn't get it. It was left to two traveling naturalists, Darwin and Wallace, to get it. Found a microphone over this side. Good, yes. Um, the, we'll have uh, this gentleman here in the hat and then come to you, yeah. Hey, can we go right back to the beginning? You talked about um, life as something which is a replicative process. Could you talk a little bit about what would have to be true for it to emerge in something that's not fundamentally the biology that exists today on Earth, whether in artificial biology that we create or in information systems and so on? That sounds like a most interesting question. I'm not sure if I quite got it. Don't, don't give up the microphone. I didn't, I'm not quite sure I, I right. got it. So you talked about life being a replicative process. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about what would need to be true for it to um, be manifested in different systems than the biology that exists on Earth today, whether off this planet or in information well, systems or, yeah, okay. or artificial biology? Yes. I think anywhere in the universe and anywhere in artificial systems where high-fidelity, self-replicating information which has some power over its own probability of being replicated comes into existence. That is a recipe for Darwinism and ultimately life. It's an interesting question whether it has to be digital. On this planet it is digital. DNA is highly digital. I suspect the answer is yes, it probably does have to be digital then you might ask supplementary questions like, does there have to be sex? Does there have to be some kind of recombination of the digital information rather than just replication? Does there have to be a, a reshuffling of some sort? These are all questions which come under the heading of artificial life and um, exobiology, those sorts of, of subjects are very fascinating sciences of speculation which I am interested in. Um, and I've written a little bit about what I call universal Darwinism, the, the, what would have to be true to, to get to have life anywhere. I think, I think Darwinism is, is one thing. Digital genetics is another thing. 
whether the digital genetics has to be one-dimensional, which it is in our case. I mean, DNA is a, is a string of which, it, which is read in, in, in sequential order. But I don't see why it shouldn't be a two-dimensional matrix, for example. That would be another possibility. And um, one could imagine artificial life in computers exploring that sort of possibility. Congratulations on your recent book. What will your next book be? My next book, um, it's called The Genetic Book of the Dead. Is that the title might be the best part, I think. Um, it is a little bit hard to summarize, but the, the idea fundamentally is that um, if you look at an animal or you look at its genes, you can read the animal as a text describing the ancient worlds in which its ancestors lived and were naturally selected to give rise to it. I hope we'll be back here next year to tell us more about that. Um, this gentleman here in the uh, brightly brilliant shirt, is there a mic near him? Uh, thanks for the fashion compliment. Uh, made me feel really good. Um, hello, everyone. Um, do you think religion is a distinctly human schism and so therefore is unnatural? Or have you seen or observed within nature other animals that may I don't know I'm thinking like are there ants that create circles in the ground that you could maybe see as they are creating a deity or an idea of something outside themselves or is it an unnatural human schism I, I, I'm not sure about the word natural but but I don't I don't think you'll find it in any other species I think it is a uh, a, a, a probably uniquely human thing, a universal human thing, I should say, because I think anthropologists will tell us that all human cultures have religion in one form or another. I think it's probably there are no, no exceptions to that. So it, it, is a, a, it is a thoroughly natural thing in humans. doesn't make it good, though. <laughs> but I suppose the next part of this question was whether you have identified anything in animal groups that sort of comes close to that idea. Of, of well, I religious can't think communities of or... um, um, there, there are anecdotes about elephants uh, respecting the dead and, and that kind of thing, but, but um, that doesn't have to be religion. You can respect the dead without being religious. Hi, Richard. I've read a few of your books and listened to a few podcasts, one podcast in particular with Sam Harris. He's keen to get you to try psychedelics. <laughs> one, because it'd be quite funny, but two, because he thinks you might change your mind on certain things. So my question is, you said it yourself, you're 81 and you're not fearful of dead, death. Are you going to try them? Uh, a, a dear friend has offered to mentor me through an um, LSD trip. Um, she said she will take a half dose so she can stop me jumping out of the window or anything like that. But uh, uh, I, I, I might. But I don't. See the sort of audience we've got here. If you think that the only point of life, or, well, the main meaning of life is just to continue, then why do you think that life 
originated and began? Very good question. Um, Thank you. Uh, it, it began the moment when a molecule arose which was self-replicating and therefore had that exact property you're talking about, which is wanting to go, not wanting to go on, but those variants of it which do go on are the ones which go on, and that's all there is to it. It's not that they want to go on. It's that the world becomes full of those variants which do happen to go on and have the property that makes them go on. So it's a, it's a purely mechanical process. It's not a, it's not a, a, will, a willful thing. And it began when the first self-replicating molecule arose, which was, nobody knows exactly when, but probably about four billion years ago. Thank you. I think we've got time for one more. Um, let's get this uh, lady at the front. Oh. Um, you mentioned I'm wanting to get people to care more about facts. Um, obviously, our education system isn't doing a great job of teaching people how to think. Um, how would you, uh, whether it's advice to parents or, you know, um, if you could change the education system in any way, how would you go about actually teaching people how to think? You were alluding to it earlier in terms of, you know, how you would... Um, teach children religion but I think you're asking how you would better teach children how to think and think more openly in the way that you were hoping yes, that they would. Yes I, I can't say it much more than, than, than just to respect evidence um, to, to encourage children to say not okay you the adult have told me such and such so I believe it but rather um, what's the evidence for that and it, it it, admittedly, the answer has to be tailored to the age group of the child, and, and, and it's not that easy for very young children, I suppose, but I imagine you can make exercises for children in practice. Are you a teacher yourself? No, exercises in practice um, where the, the, the children are encouraged to investigate for themselves and find out the evidence for, for things. Um, I was really interested, because I couldn't find any information anywhere about this, but do you think sexual fetishes are a spandrel? Uh, as in, I don't, I don't know if it's a um, evolutionary biological question. I think it is partly. Sexual uh, preferences, did you say? No, um, fetishes, like a oh, foot fetish. Is oh, it a spandrel? Okay. Um. Interesting way to end. <laughs> Uh, a spandrel, um, he asked the question about whether sexual fetishes are a spandrel. A, a spandrel is, m means, um, it, it's, it's a word that's crept into the evolutionary literature. Um, if you look at um, Gothic arches in churches like King's College, Cambridge, you see in between the arches there's a kind of triangular bit, which is not doing anything, but which has to be there because otherwise you couldn't have arches. It's just a gap between the arches. And so I presume the purpose of the question is that um, sexual fetishes are a kind of filling in the gaps between what sex is all about, which is, of course, mating to produce, to produce offspring. And so we're left with the question, which I think the question is worried about, is how do we explain fetishes, foot fetishes and things like that? Um, and his suggestion is that it's um, a kind of byproduct of. Um, I'm putting words into your mouth, but um, um, a sort of byproduct of what sex is really all, all about, which is mating between a male and, and a female to produce offspring. Yes. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. 
and thank you for brilliant questions, everyone. Richard, thank you very much indeed. This episode starred Richard Dawkins and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The show is made by me, Vas Christodoulou, and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. We'll be back at Wilderness in just a few weeks. Hope to see you there.